I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 12th, 2013. Coming up, we'll hear about a well-paying job that killed women with uranium poisoning and a play that we'll be able to see at CU Boulder this week. And we talk with David Epstein about his book, The Sports Gene. Last Thursday, what may be the most powerful superstorm ever recorded slammed the Philippines. The World Meteorological Association named it Typhoon Haiyan. Haiyan is now crossing Vietnam, where it has diminished considerably. But before it struck the Philippines last week, Haiyan's sustained winds reached 195 miles per hour. Peak winds topped 230 miles per hour, which are the wind speeds of a deadly tornado, enough to level even a well-built house. Whether Haiyan is the most powerful superstorm ever recorded depends on how you measure. In 1979, Typhoon Tip was wider, spanning almost 1,400 miles, compared to Haiyan's 500-mile circumference. But TIP's top sustained wind speeds were 190 miles an hour, five miles an hour slower than Haiyan. Meanwhile, Hurricane Sandy, the deadly superstorm that hit the U.S. last year, never blew more than 115 miles per hour, so 100 miles an hour slower than Haiyan. Climatologists report that we need more data to determine whether human-caused climate change is triggering more superstorms. Still, some pundits are wondering whether this latest storm's name has a warning in it. Hayan is the Chinese word for a seabird named a petrel, and petrel is similar to the shorthand name for petroleum. In other news, CU Boulder's American Gut Project is releasing preliminary data about how the foods we eat affect the microbes in our guts. From over 1,000 microbial samples sent in from people from all walks of life, one initial finding includes the so-called paleo diet. A paleo diet is named after the idea that we evolved to eat like our paleolithic ancestors 10,000 years ago. A paleo diet often includes more protein and fiber than the typical American diet and less sugar, starch, and salt. It turns out that paleo eaters had fewer proteobacteria in their guts, and those bacteria have been linked to inflammation. But the leader of the study, Rob Knight, says the paleo diet individuals also have more of a microbe called firmicutes that has been associated with obesity. Knight points out that it's not enough data yet to figure out which microbes are the good guys and which are not and how they work together as a community. But since this is the first project where members of the public can get their microbes sequenced with the data available for anyone else to use, including educators and researchers, Knight predicts that there will be much more to discover. And mark your calendars for tonight's Café Scientifique, free public lectures on science that include question and answer sessions with the speaker. Boulder's Café Sci tonight will take place at the Outlook Hotel. Refreshments start at 5.30, followed by a presentation by P.J. Bennett about remote web-based science labs. Denver has a Café Sci tonight, too, which takes place at the Wincoop Brewery. Tonight's topic in Denver features Kevin Dean, M.D., of the CU Medical School Division of Rheumatology. His topic is autoimmunity environmental. If so, is it preventable? 
Last but not least, we want to give a shout-out to celebrated astronaut and best-selling author Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin believes we could get people to Mars by the 2030s. He'll be signing copies of his new book, Mission to Mars, this Saturday at the Barnes & Noble in Glendale, Colorado. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Running has become a great elite sport, thanks in part to the amazing sprinters from Jamaica and the long-distance runners from the African equator. How much is all that running talent nature? And what part is the power of nurture? In his book, The Sports Gene, David Epstein says it's definitely both. Here's Shelley and David. David Epstein, in your book, The Sports Gene, one area where nature and nurture combine almost seamlessly is in Jamaican track and field runners. It's a complex story. So for one, Jamaican sprinters have long legs uh, proportional to their body size, which is good for running. And that's purely an adaptation to having ancestry at low latitude. It's for cooling. It's to increase. It's the same reason that your radiator has long coils, to increase the surface area compared to the volume to let heat out. And that happens to be good for running. So it's not just Jamaicans, but every man who's been in an Olympic 100-meter final since 1980, whether his homeland is Canada, the United States, Portugal, Netherlands, Jamaica, has been from one tiny swath of West Africa where uh, people have longer proportional legs. High rates of malaria in that region have caused genetic adaptations that lead to more explosive muscles that are better for sprinting. And then you take a population of those people, you put them in sprint-crazy Jamaica, where the national high school track championships is the biggest entertainment event of the year and and high school coaches are bribing parents with refrigerators to get the best kids to come to their school and you really make the most of the talent on on a tiny island of 2.7 million. In making the most, you point out that there are rewards for being this kind of talented athlete, which mean that these athletes are less likely to become basketball players or football players because running is just so well-loved in Jamaica. That's right. I mean, think of Usain Bolt, for example. So he grew up wanting to be a soccer player or a cricketer. And here's a kid who's six foot four when he's 15 years old with blinding speed. What are the chances if he's growing up in the United States, he ends up on the track? I would say zero. <laughs> you know, a principal basically yanked him away from soccer and cricket and, and put him on the track. And, you know, now he's, he's changed what we think about human speed. There are a lot of eyeballs in Jamaica looking out for sprint talent, and then the kids can really gain local renown and potentially professional shoe contracts and, and team contracts if they perform well at the National High School Championships. So in Jamaica, there's a lot of love of sports. That promotes a lot of athleticism. And then in some countries, like in Kenya, you mentioned that some of the athleticism starts because kids are so poor that they have to walk or run miles to get to school. We think of all Kenyans as being good marathoners here in the United States. In Kenya, they think of the Kalenjin tribe, which is just about 12% of the population as being great marathoners. They live in the western Rift Valley province. It's a very rural area. Most people make their living on shambas, which are little subsistence farms. The kids grow up running to and from school. You know, running is a way of life for them. When I was there running, they would come alongside me, like carrying their groceries and running home in sandals. And so... They find out who the best are among them as kids, and then they're really primed to be ready for training as adults because running is nature to them. Running is nature to them, but you mentioned that some of these athletes who become successful and can afford to have kids driven to school, their children don't like to run as much. 
<laughs> That's right. One fun interview when I was in the town of Eldoret, which is the nearest city to the big training base in Kalenjin country in Kenya, was with Moses Kiptanui, who used to be the world record holder uh, in the steeplechase, which is a distance running event. And I remember on the way to the interview, I saw a milk truck go by. And when I got to Moses's office, he told me he owns the dairy farm that makes the milk. He owns the truck that transports the milk and the building that houses the grocery store that sells the milk. So these runners can really become one-man economies. And when I asked him, you know, so, so do you, what about your kids? You know, do they run? He said, no, no, no. A car comes and picks them up for school. They like to do easier sports. Easier sports. So they're not world-class athletes, but they're having good lives anyway. That's right. They're quality of life has certainly improved from the circumstances in which Moses grew up. Well, so it was a fascinating book. And David Epstein, in your book, The Sports Gene, I kept wondering if I'm not going to ever be an elite athlete because I actually doubt I ever will. <laughs> well, you're not trying, so you definitely won't be. <laughs> well, there you go. But why did I read your book? Well, I, I, to me, so I um, obviously am interested in sports, but to me, I this book was sort of my own journey into my deepest questions about athleticism. And to me, athleticism is about human biology and human biological diversity and human ancestry. You know, it, it's a book about evolution told through the lens of uh, sports. And so I, I was hoping, and I think it has appealed to people that are interested in some of these nature-nurture questions and genetics and what we've learned from the Human Genome Project – not that they have to care about who wins this game or that game, because I really don't either. So it wasn't so much a matter of, am I going to be one of those elite athletes? But dreaming a little bit about that, I, I can't help but admit that I look closely at how you say that fast twitch muscle people should train differently than slow twitch muscle people, because I think I'm a fast twitcher. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went, well, if I have any chance of getting a little better at anything I do, I should be aware that fast twitch muscle people can injure themselves more easily, for instance. That's right. And so that's why I think so Usain Bolt, who is kind of the epitome of a fast twitch person, is I think he's really got it figured out. People used to criticize him for not training enough. So he started training more and he was injured all the time. And we didn't hear from him for a while. He sort of got back to doing what he knew was right for his biology. Uh, not racing a lot, you know, taking time off a lot more than most athletes would. And, you know, and now he had such success with it that now people let him do it. And now his coach will let him mispractice sometimes when he feels like he needs to. And, you know, in the book, I write about a Danish scientist who takes muscle samples from all the elite athletes he works with and tells them, this is how you should be training and you should actually be training less. And so really what we're learning from exercise genetics is that everyone has a totally unique genome. So for optimal athletic development, everyone would have a totally unique environment. And the trick is finding that, that correct training environment. And one other example of that is uh, bones. I've been told I have very light bones, so I'm not going to feel bad if I don't become a world-class weightlifter. No, that's right. You probably won't if you have very light bones. So that would be good for certain aspects of running, but the lighter your bones are, the less muscle they can support. So for women, um, you know, as I wrote in the book, it's about 4.2 pounds of muscle that can go on every pound of uh, bone and, and no more than that. So if you added weight beyond that, it would just be fat. So the lighter your bones are, the more limited you are in how much muscle you'll be able to pack on. And I don't have to feel bad about that. This is just me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So sports are the ultimate human contrivances, and they've been designed to sort of feature certain aspects of biology. But that doesn't mean that any other 
traits are any better or worse. That's human biological diversity on display, you know, and that's who you are. And that's advantageous for certain other things. That's why you never see the same person winning the 100 meters in the marathon because those two biologies can't exist in the same body. It's not that one is better or worse. They're just very different. Your book overall made me feel like even if I may not win everything or much, there's something fun and there's something healthy about the urge to try. You know, I kind of close the book with this message that training is the ultimate exploration of your own biology. It's beyond even what geneticists can tell you if you try different things and see how they affect you, you know, both psychologically and physically. That's a journey greater than even cutting-edge genetics can give to you at this point. Did you intend to write this to be a happy book? You know, I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really think about it. I, I intended to write it to sort of pursue, to take my own deepest questions about athleticism as far as I possibly could with the available science, but I had no idea what the message would be. I did want to end on a positive note because I think sports is sort of this beautiful stage um, for examining human biological diversity. You know, you see a Michael Phelps who's six foot four and has the same size pants leg as the guy who's five foot nine and holds the world record in the mile. You know, and I think that's really fascinating. I, I, I don't know if I thought it would be happy, but I hoped that it would be sort of an appreciation of human biological diversity. Are people telling you that they finished the book with a smile? It's been a real mix. Mostly, yes, people have had a very positive response to it. A couple people, I think, have felt that I'm saying training doesn't matter. And I, I think more people are reacting to some of the articles that have been written in that way, because that's certainly not what I say in the book. But a couple of the articles pointing out some of the genes that I mentioned that are important, and as if that means training isn't also important. But I think the people that have read through the whole book have really, really enjoyed it. And I've gotten a great response. I'm really blown away, actually. Well, thank you for writing the book. It's, it's certainly opened my eyes. And what is your next plan for a project? What's your next book? I, I, oh, gosh, I have no idea. I'm taking suggestions, but I really don't know. This project, it, it took so much energy. I might take a little book time off before I consider a next one. Okay, well, thanks again. The pleasure is mine. I really enjoyed it. David Epstein is the author of The Sports Gene. We have some copies of this book available to listeners who call and pledge their support to KGNU. If you'd like a copy, drop by this station or call us here at 303-449-4885. Next is a story about the glow of radium watch dials and the new play, These Shining Lives. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We explore science for many reasons. Curiosity, a hunger to understand how our universe works. We often find ways that science leads to better lives for people, but sometimes innovations lead to tragedies. This Thursday at CU Boulder, there's a play about one of the most stunning technologies to ever harm U.S. workers. It involves a technique from the early 1900s that it made it possible for the hands of watches to glow in the dark. The glow came from radioactive paint, which killed many of the young women who were told to lick their paintbrushes to make sure that the dials were painted properly. Thursday's play is titled These Shining Lives, and it's fitting that it will open at CU just 10 miles from the former Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant, where controversy still rages over radioactive contamination. Here to tell us more is the director of These Shining Lives, Elizabeth Daub. Hi, 
Hi there. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a bit more about what this play is about, about this amazing technology of glow-in-the-dark paint and the women who died? Well, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, at, in the 1920s, in the early 1920s, radium was considered a miracle cure. Um, I think even uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was uh, known to drink radium water as a health benefit. Um, there were uh, the, the advertising that you can find for face creams, for, um, you know, even things for sexual prowess. I mean, every possible thing was uh, attributed to radium as a miracle cure. And then um, they uh, they began the workers in this radium dial company. At first, uh, the first cases were in Orange, New Jersey. Grace Fryer, pretty Grace Fryer, as many people know. This play deals with the workers in the largest plant of the radium dial company. Radium dial made their watches exclusive watch dials for West Clocks. West Clocks asked them to move from Chicago, where they originally started, to the same town where West Clocks factory was. And so the the women were painting the dials, and slowly, uh, because the routine was that you would uh, point the brush in your mouth, so they would dip it into pure radium, dip and and well, it was mixed with a, a powder, so it would adhere a glue, and then they would paint the dials, and they started to become sick. The story, the play tells the story of these women whose. Uh, illnesses mounted, they were horrible, horrible, and who they were told that there was nothing wrong with them, that they were weak. Well, Elizabeth Dawn, because these women were licking the paintbrushes, very common were decay of their jaws. Yes, necrosis of the jaw was quite common. Uh, They would first notice because when they would have tooth extractions, and many of them did, they wouldn't heal and uh, the infection would get so bad, and then eventually there would be necrosis of the jaw. Well, here we are in this time period where some people were drinking radioactive tonics, thinking that they might be good for health, but the science had definitely mounted, saying this stuff was dangerous. You mentioned that there's a famous... Madame Curie, who commented on these cases. Yes, eventually the women, uh, after being tested and never given their test results, they were tested by doctors provided by Radium Dial who told the women that they were sick, that they had bad nerves, that they just weren't strong enough to work. Many of the women were fired and left without income or compensation. Um, And eventually, uh, when the case went to trial, um, Madame Curie was, was contacted uh, at that point in time, she said that she did not know what exactly would happen to these women, but that she knew without a doubt that they should not be putting ingesting radium in any way, shape, or form. And she actually died before the trial from radium poisoning, before the trial was concluded. So she died, but she knew what she was encountering. For her, it was kind of an innocent accident that Absolutely. she was working with this. She, as a scientist, discovered this is dangerous. She shared that information One of the most disquieting parts of this whole story, this true story, is that the management and the owners knew that this stuff was dangerous. They would wear lead coats to go around the same radium that the girls, they were told, to lick their paintbrushes. Uh, the 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 I mean the play doesn't go into all of the detail, but this was a sort of rabbit hole to fall into of research, and it was fascinating. And you find that. Some of the first women who actually died, uh, the families demanded autopsies and said, our family physician must be present for this. Radium Dial said, fine. uh, This was from Margaret Looney, one of the early women. The family shows up and the autopsy has been completed and ascribed to something completely different. I mean, this kind of 
outright lying happened again and again, and many of these women were publicly accused of having syphilis. So not only were they victims of really horrible death, but they were scandalized and then ostracized in their community. Ottawa, Ottawa, Illinois, is a small town, and there was a huge economic boon to have that industry. And as is so often the case, still I think you can find cases of this where people um, don't want to look at a harsh fact because it is economically disadvantageous. Well, in fact, even though the women were dying, their families, their churches were saying, don't talk about this because we need this radium dial factory in our area. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing I love best about the play that Melanie Marnich has written is that you see that the women probably gained the strength to go to to expose their private lives to the press. They were called publicly in the Chicago papers the Society of the Living Dead. Many of these women were mothers of small children, and I think it was the strength of the friendships that they formed at work that allowed them to have the courage to go, no, we're going to change it. You know, even though this is a story from the 1920s, roughly, it's still pertinent today in many ways, including with the radium dial poisoning, because in Ottawa, Illinois, the place where all of this happened was kind of a school for a while. And it wasn't until recently that someone took a radioactive Geiger counter and checked to see whether any radioactivity was left. Even the desks were radioactive, and people who were around the desks were getting too much radioactivity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, The legacy of radium, as we have come to know, is quite long. And these women... Uh, who were buried in the Ottawa Cemetery, all of their bodies were exhumed and taken to Argonne National Laboratories just south of Chicago so that they, so that science could understand what the full body burden is, what amount of radium. Because we also know that radium, I mean, cancer patients are given radium treatment. It does have powerful, beneficial um, properties, but it, there is a, a you know a limit that it, and they needed to find that. And these women, not only they were very instrumental in in helping science to understand what the body burden is, it can be tolerated. And they were very instrumental in starting worker protection rights in the United States that had not been there before for just about anything. Absolutely. So lots of reasons to look at this play that's coming up on Thursday. Can you tell us a bit more about how to find information about this? Uh, absolutely. The play runs November 14th through the 21st, uh, the only day that we, the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 19th, 20th, and 21st, and the Sunday performance on the 17th is at 2 o'clock. Um, there'll be post-show discussions with the cast on uh, the 14th, I think the 17th and the 19th, and uh, the CU Boulder box office, and all that information is available online. Thank you for joining us. Our guest has been Elizabeth Dodd. The play that is going to be starting at CU Boulder is These Shining Lives. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. Thank you, Shelley, for producing this week's show. Additional contributions by Jim Pullen. Our theme music is written and produced by Joss Cutler. Additional music from Vangelis and Pretty Lights from Fort Collins. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Shelley Schlender.